Okay. Great. All right, Mavon, you, you good to go? I'm ready. Awesome. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome back to the Yang Gang Podcast. As always, we are your hosts, Evan and Connor, and today we're here with Sebastian Johnson. Sebastian is a consultant and an expert on criminal justice reform. Sebastian has been featured in the Washington Post, the Independent, C-SPAN, and he has given a TEDx talk advocating for universal basic income. So just to start out, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I am a, a native Washingtonian, was born in the city and then grew up in Maryland, uh, right outside. Uh, that's where my family's from. And I've always been really you know, passionate about public service, um, as well as issues of education or development criminal justice um, and really just thinking about how public policy can be a ladder uh, and opportunity for more people so what uh, what was I'm sorry what was uh, what prompted you to get interested into public policy was there a specific moment um, in your youth that that really spurred your interest yeah that's a, that's a good question I think that um, you know a lot of it comes to my mom uh, my mom was a a 30-year veteran of the D.C. public school system. Uh, she taught uh, everything from pre-kindergarten all the way up to sixth grade and, and really um, emphasized the importance of education and of serving others. Um, and so that that really was kind of my first um, introduction or kind of she was my first teacher in terms of the importance of public education and public service. Um, as a high school student, I was really involved in student government and had the privilege of serving uh, on the local school board of Montgomery County. So I was a student member elected to the school board of Montgomery County, and that was um, both a real honor, but also an early introduction to uh, elected office and, and the ability of uh, people who are working in public life to affect change for others. Um, it's a really rewarding experience. What do you think are some... Uh and I know this is a broad question, but what do you think are some of the biggest problems that the justice system faces today? Um, you know, I think that the biggest problem that our justice system has is the same problem that our economy has, which is that we have essentially a two-tiered system where if you are wealthy and well-connected, uh, you are able to buy your way out of accountability and take responsibility for your actions. And if you are poor and you don't know the right people, often you're being punished for being poor. Not necessarily your actions, not necessarily um, your, your, your worthiness of being punished. Um, I think you see it most often in the area of fines and fees. There are a number of different fines and fees that are levied in the justice system that on the face of it seem fair because everyone is responsible for paying whatever fine or fee. You know, if you get a traffic ticket, everyone pays the same uh, face value of that ticket. But what ends up happening is that justice system actors rely on people who are in poverty to fund their system, to fund the justice system. They are targeting people uh, who are in poverty to load them up with fines and fees that then accumulate and and uh, end up putting people deeper into debt and in a worse position than they were in uh, before they had any interaction with the criminal justice system. And so instead of being a system that produces accountability, produces public safety, uh, you end up with systems that do 
the exact opposite, that are incarcerating people, keeping people poor, uh, and keeping people from having the tools they need to be successful. Is, mm. is America un- unique in that regard? I know there's that quote that, you know, the land of the free has the highest incarceration rate. Why is it, why is it like that in America? Why is it higher? Um, well, I mean, I, I don't think that America is unique in terms of uh, having these practices. There are obviously countries that have uh, horrific uh, practices embedded in the criminal justice systems uh, that are not uh, fair, nor they just. Um, but I think that in America, you see, uh, uh, we are unique in terms of the scope of, of how we treat people. And I think that uh, part of that can't be separated from the history of slavery and white supremacy that we have in this country. You look at the racial disparities in our system, um, even when you have reduced the number of people in prison or you reduce the number of people sub- subject to a negative policy, as we have seen in the criminal justice reform movement, the disparities remain. Um, and so you can't separate the history of our criminal justice system um, or really, uh, really understand poverty in the country without also understanding a history of racialized oppression. That's so interesting. So you did a TEDx talk about universal basic income. Um, do you think that a UBI would, would help this? So I think that the intersection of criminal justice policy and UBI is really interesting. Um, so on the one hand, I think that having a basic income would obviously reduce um, some of the crime and violence that you see concentrated in impoverished neighborhoods. Um, you, wherever you see poverty in the country, you see crime. And that isn't just the story of, of inner city communities, it's also the story of rural communities that have first been hit by uh, job loss and by, and by poverty, and then have been hit by increasing uh, violence, mostly related to mental health issues and substance abuse issues. And so UBI is a stabilizing effect in terms of reducing the, the supply um, of, of crime because you're reducing the number of people who are desperate enough to commit crime. I think that in the context also of the criminal justice system, once you enter the criminal justice system, you really do, it is really like having a scarlet letter. Once you have a criminal record, a host of opportunities are foreclosed to you. Um, You can't um, live in public housing. You can't for a number of occupations, there, there's licensing that you can't apply for if you have a felony record. Uh, even if you're applying for a job where you don't have a felony record, there are a lot of employment practices that make it difficult to secure a job. And so the biggest problem that people face in the year after incarceration is just material hardship. Um, when people get out of prison, they're existing uh, uh, a majority on about $6,000 a year, which is half the federal poverty line. Wow. You, yeah, and when you, when you get out of prison, you're also 10 times more likely to be homeless than someone uh, who has not uh, had incarceration, even at the same, within the same poverty level, because of the restrictions on where you can be housed and, uh, um, and because of discrimination against people who have records in the housing um, market. For 
more research on this if you're interested in it. And I would suggest checking out uh, the research that Bruce Western has done uh, through the Boston Reentry Study. And the name of his, his book is Homework, um, where he covers a lot of this. But that is one way in which criminal, criminal justice policy, UBI policy interacts, that we, we need to offer people material support for the deep, deep poverty that they find themselves in once they are released from prison. Um, not only as a moral uh, uh, imperative for our society, but also just from a practical standpoint, if you want people to be successful, if you want them not to commit new crimes, then you have to give them supports to do that and to reenter society. When were uh, when did you first get introduced to the concept of universal basic income? Was it now we're we are the Yang Gang podcast, so I have to ask it kind of through the vein. Was it was it something that you had heard Andrew Yang say, or was it um, well before he uh, kind of hit the public with that uh, policy proposal? Because I know, you know, obviously like Martin Luther King mm-hmm. and Thomas Paine all the way back in the 1700s. I know uh, uh, that uh, bill almost got passed during the Nixon era. But were, were you familiar with, with this idea before Andrew Yang or right around the time when he started to kind of gain traction in the public? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I was first introduced to the idea sometime in 2014 or 2015. Um, I was a graduate student and had a, um, a really good friend of mine uh, who was a game designer. Uh, and we would often have these kind of long philosophical conversations. He had studied philosophy. I'd studied economics and public policy. And, uh, you know, as, as one does in grad school, we had a lot of time to just talk about the world as it should be. Um, and in the beginning of our conversations, we would often start out polar opposites. You know, I'm more of a traditional progressive he leaned more libertarian. And as we would talk about different topics, we would f- end up meeting somewhere in the middle. And we we're kind of like, oh, there's some overlap in the ways that we think that um, we don't really see reflected in the ways that, you know, people like big P politics is usually considered in the country. Um, so we decided to start a blog. So one of the issues that we wrote about, one was occupational licensing, which is something that we thought progressives and libertarians could agree on. The other was, you know, Universal basic income. So my interest came from from blogging about this, and um, also from uh, you know it it had started to kind of germinate in the cultural zeitgeist at that time as well because of uh, you know Vox started to cover uh, Give Directly and uh, some of the uh, obvious benefits of direct cash transfers over. Um, the way that we traditionally think about international development, which is like, you know, buy a bunch of malaria nets and we'll hope it, hope it sorts itself out. I think that um, when I was first introduced to the idea of universal basic income, it was through both it being in the cultural zeitgeist around um, the, you know, it, it was an idea that first took hold, I think, in international development circles where Give Directly came about and said, you know, look, we can just give people money and they know what to do with it and they know how to improve their lives. And this would save a lot of overhead in terms of development. And it is a, it's a more, more uh, it's, a, it's a way to provide people assistance with dignity. And I thought that that was both, it really resonated with me. And I thought that from a domestic standpoint, it would be a way to have people understand the, the role that government can play in providing income supports to people without necessarily entailing a giant bureaucracy and more government. 
Mm. How do you how do you think we can kind of steer ourselves away from that stigma of this this idea of government handout leading to, you know, laziness or you know not giving anyone incentive to to work hard because in these small little um, experiments around the country and the world with with the concept of UBI, it's been shown that these people are using this money for you know, kickstarting their a photography business or helping to pay for their kids' college. I mean, how do you think on a, on a national level we can steer ourselves away from that, that, that stigma? Um, you know, well, I think it goes back to, you know, something I said earlier, which is that, you know, you can't, you can't divorce that stigma from a history of both racialized oppression and also class oppression that we have in the country. I think that most people what's been interesting to me as a ubi advocate is how often the first question that people ask is about but what about people who will not spend the money the right way um no one ever says oh what would i do with a thousand dollars they always say what about the person who's going to take a thousand dollars and do something that i morally object to um and i think the stigma comes from um some innate ideas about who we think is poor in this country usually uh, people of color, especially black people, um, and, and, what we, and what we think about the reasons that they are poor. So I think part of it is about, you know, addressing that head on, um, and also it's about showing the examples, as you say, of the people who are really, you know, maximizing their potential with the money. I think that the other part is leaning less into trying to confront that stigma and uh, directing those ne- that negative emotion and that negative energy to where it should be, which is, you know, anger at the structural elements in the country that keep people poor. Um, you know, in some of the experiments that are being that are going on right now, most people are using their UBI payments to pay down debt. Why is that? That's because we have an economy that has been so uh, structured and consumed by the financial industry as to make debt the only way that anyone can get ahead. You have to take out money to get an education. You have to take out personal consumer debt to for the basic necessities because people's wages haven't gone up in 30 years. And so I think really helping people understand, you know, if you have to have a villain, you know, that that anger and that frustration needs to be directed at the systems that keep people poor instead of at poor people themselves. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. So kind of on that topic, what do you think about the issue of disfranchisement? Right now, I think there are 20 states that mm-hmm. allow convicted felons to vote. Do you think that is something that let's say if it was like federally passed and any state a convicted felon was allowed to vote, do you think that would help improve some of this? Um, you know, I don't think that, you know, well, so I would say that from just a moral standpoint about what should be in our democracy, I think that everyone who has completed their sentence of incarceration should have their voting rights restored immediately upon completing that sentence of incarceration. And I don't think that that should include uh, probation or parole, or that you should have to pay off your debt to the court, uh, your monetary debts, um, in order to have that right restored um, at a bare minimum. And there are two states uh, where even if you are incarcerated, you are 
eligible to vote. And so I think that the bare minimum, once you have served your full sentence, you should have your rights restored, period. I think that it isn't enough just to re-enfranchise people. You have to give them something to vote for. But I also think that, you know, when you do look at how close some of our elections are, um, when you when you look at what happened in Florida with Amendment 4, which was a people-led movement that started in, in Desimede's living room and, and grew into a national movement that re-enfranchised 1.4 million Floridians, you know, the last gubernatorial election in Florida was decided by something like uh, 140,000 votes. And so I do think that once you are re-enfranchising people, you do make it so that our elected officials and our appointed public officials do need to start considering um, the perspectives of people who were previously left out of the system. But I don't think it, it would be as easy as um, re-enfranchising people and hoping that they vote your way. You also have to do better education. You have to convince those people who were incarcerated to, to vote the way that you'd like them to and, and uh, treat them as a savvy voters as they surely are. It could definitely restore some uh, public trust in the uh, functionings of the government, don't you think? Absolutely. I think that part of the reason that there, there isn't a lot of trust in, in our electoral system is that um, you, know, you can have someone win a popular vote by three million votes and then lose the election because of the electoral college. I think we have anti-majoritarian systems and, and, and institutions, um, some of them for... Uh, good reason in terms of wanting to make sure that minority perspectives are protected. But some of them, uh, because the people who created our political system were themselves of a certain class and of a certain perspective. And so I do think that in order to restore trust in the system, there there does have to be an understanding that the institutions need uh, to match the the rhetoric that we that we often hear about this being a democracy. Yeah, I agree. I think even uh, going a little bit further, I think even universal basic income could help re- restore some serious public trust that's so direly needed right now in this country where everyone is kind of feeling isolated and separated and, you know, the government isn't working for them. But maybe that that if it were ever to get passed, it could reinvigorate, um, you know, those towns that I know you had mentioned uh, there was a town in Rhode Island in your TED talk. The towns like that all across the country mm-hmm. could be totally reinvigorated and have a, a little bit more sense of hope in, in not only their lives, but uh, the future of the country and, you know, uh, not only getting their lives restored a little bit, but their communities and ultimately uh, the country in the sort of a domino effect manner. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. And I think that people often... Uh you know, people, you know, they, they say we want to get back to the 50s where people, you know, believe in institutions and they have trust in government, um, but they neglect to mention that it was also a period of robust public support for, um, for, for ordinary people, people who are entering the middle class who were returning from fighting a war and wanted to get a degree. I think that the, the one thing that the fatal flaw in that system and, and the thing that we've been grappling with since is that huge portions of the country, uh, particularly immigrants, particularly the black community, were left out of that vision of, of the middle class. And so 
if if we want to preserve the idea of multiracial democracy, we have to articulate a vision that both includes everyone, but that also shows how government can be a positive force in everyone's life. Um, and so I think that figuring that out is kind of the, the task that's before us generationally. Um, and, and one element of that, I think, is UBI and, and understanding how we can have a robust public sector that supports everyone and that provides everyone the dignity um, and, and, the, and the set of, uh, the set of basic needs that, that they need met. Building on that, what qualities would you say then you look for in a presidential candidate? You know, I, I think that I, I want a, I want a presidential candidate that is committed to, um, structural changes. Um, because I think that as much as I, as much as I support UBI, I think that it would not be adequate as a policy on its own to address some of the deeper needs that we have in the country. Um, I look, I look for a candidate that has, um, experience in, in government and making government work. Um, and I think that the other thing that's really important to me, uh, in a candidate is someone who can kind of speak with moral clarity to these issues. I think that, that um, you know, particularly as a, as a Democrat, it's been frustrating, um, to see party struggle to, to come up with a response to Trump that's outside that isn't just, well, Trump is bad. It's like, we know that Trump is bad, mm-hmm. but, but what is the vision that the party is putting forward um, that is going to make a meaningful difference in the lives of everyday people? Part of the, the problem with the party is that, you know, as much as the Republican Party, we've been co-opted by the managerial class, um, of, you know, which I am a member. So, you know, there it is. But we we've been co-opted <laughs> by we've been co-opted by the people in the in the in the country who are doing well as much as as the other parties. We don't really have a working class party in this country. Um, we have we have politicians who who come from working class backgrounds, but mm-hmm. we don't have a, a a party that really speaks to the concerns of working people. And so I think that. That's one reason why UBI has really taken off and why people are so excited about Andrew Yang's campaign is that they, they see a policy that is, that is both uh, simple and makes a simple moral case, but that also is addressing the direct need that they have, which is that I need cash. I need money now. I don't need a, a complicated government program. I need to not have to take out a payday loan just to cover my basic expenses every month. What, um, I guess one of my last questions I have for you is just what is one is, what is your overall opinion on, on the, uh, debates and Andrew Yang's, uh, position in it. And also just on a lighter note to wrap it up, what you would do with a thousand dollars a month. <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, I was one of the original uh, signatories for the economic security project. And so when that project started in 2017, I don't think anyone in the room thought that this is where we'd be in the 2020 election. Um, And so I am deeply grateful to Andrew uh, for for having the courage and and making the personal sacrifice of putting this issue on the map in this way and demonstrating that there's real grassroots energy 
support uh, for for the for the idea of a basic income. Um, and I've also I, I've also been uh, blown away by his uh, performance. I guess of of politics of, of doing it in a way that is accessible, that is personable, um, that is about what government can mean and what this policy can mean for people, and not about vanity and ego and so many of the other negative things that we associate with our politics right now. And so, um, I think it's just been a really exciting moment in our history. And and the the final part of that the two thousand dollars a month to kind of wrap wrap yes. us up on a little bit of a positive <laughs> note here i so i i've been married for two years now and we are due for a honeymoon so i would save that money and take my wife on a nice honeymoon well, there you go that's very nice uh that would be nice huh it, where are you guys gonna go honeymooning if you don't mind me asking you know i do not i i don't know if we have a, a place in mind uh we either Always between Greece or, or Turkey or Italy or Hawaii, any anywhere warm as a beach right there. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Well, uh, well, we thank you very much for your time, Sebastian. Um, that was very informative. Uh, the points that you talked about with us, and we we very much appreciate it. We know you're a busy guy. Absolutely. Thank thank you guys so much for having. Me on. Yeah, thank you. It's my hope that we can kind of keep a line open with you, and um, yeah, we'll see how these primaries play out. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it, and you appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. So we're gonna go out like we always go out. It's not left. It's not right. It's forward. <laughs>